Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. I'm Steve Orlands. I'm president of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm thrilled to be welcoming my old friend, friend David Shambaugh, uh, to talk about his new book, China's Leaders from Mao to Now. I like the, the poem in the title. Um, David is, of course, um, one of America's greatest China scholars. He has written many books prior to this, and in a way, he is he forms the way a lot of us think about China, whether it was book on, on uh, the resiliency of the Chinese Communist Party to the more recent one on, um, on the Belt and Road Initiative and the, its effect in Southeast Asia. His books form the way we think about it. And this book, uh, which talks about the five uh, leaders, major leaders of China that we've had since 1949, will also form the way that you think about China and its leadership during this period, bringing you up to the current leader, Xi Jinping. Uh, this is the, the book was published on September 1st, so we are thrilled that this is the first program um, that David is doing with anyone. So it's terrific to have him. Um, he is a great friend, a great friend of the committee, and to the extent that the committee today is having to educate people in the United States on China, David's work, David's book, and this book plays an important role in helping us fulfill that mission. If I listed all of his accomplishments um, and all the books he's written, we wouldn't have time to have this program. So let me just say he is currently um, the Gaston Seeger Professor of Asian Studies at the Elliott School of International Affairs at Washington, at George Washington University. But let me, David's gonna talk for around 15, 20 minutes. I'm gonna ask him some questions and then the audience will ask some questions. I should say we have been overwhelmed uh, with questions in advance. So if I can't get to your question, uh, I apologize. Feel free to go uh, to the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen to ask an additional question if you want. But David, thank you so much for writing this book. It's a wonderful read. I have to say, it took me back a while to the days when I was just starting to study China during Mao um, and is just very, very, very insightful. Insightful. So thanks for this book. Thanks for the all, all the other books. And thanks for being such a great friend of the National Committee on US-China Relations. Well, Steve, thank you. Uh, very kind introduction. And, and thanks for the invitation to launch uh, this one. Uh, with you and, and with all those who've, who've come on um, online today to, uh, for this initial launch in the U.S. The book came out in, in the U.K. over the summer, um, but this is indeed just this past week it's come out uh, in the U.S. and worldwide. Um, so the book itself um, has been percolating in my brain, you might say, literally my whole career you know, since really the very beginning uh, as an undergraduate um, and graduate student and then as a scholar and, and subsequently as a classroom professor, um, I've been interested in Chinese leaders. Um, my very first book, in fact, uh, 
which I began when I was a student in China, the first time in China at Nankai University in 1980, um, I heard about a rising star provincial leader uh, in Sichuan province by the name of Zhao Ziyang. And I started, uh, wanted to learn how to read Chinese newspapers. So I started reading Sichuan Erbao and, and um, following and studying his reforms uh, in Sichuan before he, of course, was then promoted to uh, become premier and subsequently the CCP general secretary um, prior to his purge on the eve of the June uh, 4th incident in 1989. Anyway, um, right from the very beginning, I've been interested in, in Chinese leaders and, the, and the, you might say the center. I'm one of those China scholars that looks inside the ring roads uh, more than I look outside into the country. I've always been a Zhongyang kind of guy, you might say. Um, so I've always been interested in how leaders not only get to the top, um, but in different dimensions of how Chinese leaders rule once, once they get there. Their individual leadership styles, their ideologies, uh, what strategies and tactics they adopt, uh, how they interact with each other, how they navigate and what is uh, a pretty ruthless and often brutal system, uh, which institutional levers of power they use, how they impact uh, Chinese society and indeed interact with leaders from other, other countries. So I've also been fascinated right from the beginning really um, with Leninist type political systems. When what was then called when I was in graduate school, the field of comparative communism. <laughs> if you remember that, there aren't too many communist states to compare anymore. I think four are left on the planet of which obviously China is the largest, um, but not the longest. North Korea has actually uh, North Korean regime has been in power four years longer than the Chinese Communist Party. Anyway, um, so I don't just see Chinese leaders uh, as sui generis, um, but rather very much as actors in Leninist style, in a Leninist style political system. Therefore, it's important to know the distinctiveness of these types of systems, Leninist systems. And I have a whole opening chapter um, that does that, tries to contextualize that for, for readers. Um, so my book opens with that, how to kind of think about Chinese leaders and Chinese leadership and the Chinese political system. Um, and it ends with a concluding chapter, uh, which contrasts the five principal leaders uh, who I examine, Mao, Deng, Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, and of course, Xi Jinping. And in between these two bookend uh, chapters, um, I have chapter length assessments of each of these five leaders. So first of all, what um, you might ask um, about Hua Gofeng, Zhao Ziyang, and Hu Yaobang, why don't they get chapters? Well, they could have, but I uh, made the judgment that their time at the top was not really long enough and their impact on the country not really uh, deep enough, you might say, uh, to devote whole chapter to each of them. But I do very much discuss all three um, certainly Zhao and Hu in the, in the context of the Deng chapter and Hua Gofeng in both the Mao and the Deng chapter. So they, they get attention, they just don't get their own, their own chapters. Um, needless to say, in the book, I talk about many other Chinese leaders uh, at the top as well. And then the, each of these chapters is also, I must say, really about the times of each leader as much as it is about the leaders themselves. Um, I, I try my best to explicitly examine their individual impact on policies on China and on the world. Um, and therefore, it's a book really about history 
as well. It's a political history, economic history, social history, military history, foreign relations history, uh, even ideological history. Um, uh, so it's, a, it's not just about the individuals. Um, I try and keep my analytical focus as much on the individuals as possible, but it is a kind of um, uh, textbook, you might say, and, and hopefully can be used for that purpose uh, in, in classrooms. Um, now, time today doesn't suffice to give any real detail about any of these leaders. For that, you'll, people will have to go hopefully buy a copy. Um, but let me give you a brief sense of how I evaluate each leader and why. So each uh, leader's chapter has a subtitle, a descriptor, you might say. So let me tell you what they are and briefly why I use them. So uh, starting with Mao, I call him a populist tyrant. Um, why? Because he repeatedly tried to tap into what today is called populism, right? Um, uh, appealing to the downtrodden, the dispossessed, and disaffected elements of society, most notably, of course, the rural peasantry. Um, Mao was a deeply anti-elitist, and I would argue an anti-institutional uh, politician as well, who repeatedly appealed straight to the, to the masses and mobilized the masses against <laughs> institutions and elites, most notably, of course, during the Cultural Revolution. He had a rather innate faith, kind of voluntarist faith in them and their ability to exercise collective agency and change deeply rooted cultural practices, norms, and institutions. Um, so he was a populist. Um, he may have been a Marxist, he was a Marxist, but I wouldn't say he was particularly much of a Leninist uh, when it came to utilizing the party and state institutions, particularly after 1956. He had deep distrust of institutions and bureaucracies and indeed repeatedly sought to mobilize society, as I say, against the party state. So Ma was very much also a revolutionary, of course, and I would I argue in the book of the Trotskyite variety, seeking perpetual revolution and the export of it, two things that characterized Trotsky before he was exiled from the Soviet Union. Um, Mao, of course, I think, <laughs> was also one of the great, if you want to call it that, despots and tyrants of the 20th century in the League of Hitler and Stalin, responsible directly or indirectly for tens of millions of deaths. Now, these two elements, a leader who cultivated the masses yet also stigmatized and terrorized several segments of the population stand in contrast, to put it mildly, yet, yet they capture the kind of main contradiction in the man. So that's why I call him a populist tyrant. Now, his lasting legacy um, is mixed, and, but I would say generally very negative. On the one hand, he is recognized by Chinese as the father of the Republic, is seen as a leader who restored China's unity and dignity, not unimportant, in fact, very important, and was a philosopher statesman. On the other hand, his rule is defined by extreme unpredictability, unrelenting and extraordinary repression and brutality. And he was personally responsible for causing great domestic chaos and retarding China's development. So uh, I give him pretty uh, low marks. You may recall that Deng Xiaoping, I think, generously gave him 70% good, 30% bad marks. I would flip that around, 30% um, at best good and 70% bad. So I don't have a very positive view of, of, of Chairman Mao. Deng, um, I describe as a pragmatic Leninist. Now, we all know that Deng was 
pragmatic in, in his policies, mainly economic and, and foreign policy, as summed up in his famous statement, it doesn't matter if a cat's black or white, as long as it catches mice, it's a good cat, right? Um, so, so that's the, we all know about the pragmatic side of Dung. The Leninist descriptor refers to his emphasis on, on institutions, on rebuilding from the wreckage of the Cultural Revolution um, and Mao's destruction, uh, rebuilding and ruling through institutions at all levels of the party and government. Um, while Deng gave all sectors of society new freedoms, he also was very much an organization man, and he strengthened the institutions of control, which are the essence of Leninism. Deng is to be remembered primarily um, for having overturned the deleterious effects of the Maoist era, having launched the country on reform and opening, having stimulated many of the processes that have resulted in China becoming a global power today. Um, he set all of those in train. His accomplishments in foreign policy were also, I think, very significant, establishing diplomatic relations with the United States, to be sure. In fact, I was there and met him twice during his visit uh, to Washington in 1979. Um, he normalized ties with the Soviet Union and open relations with Asian and European countries. Um, so those, you know, that was that was major impact too, not just his um, his internal domestic reforms. Yet clearly the 1989 Tiananmen massacre is the most obvious and lasting stain on his legacy. Uh, Jiang Zemin. What about Jiang Zemin? Well, I characterize him as a bureaucratic politician. Um, and this is because um, when he was catapulted to the top in 1989, uh, in the aftermath of June 4th, Jiang had almost a non-existent power base. He had no real patrons other than Wang Daohan in Shanghai. He had no ties to the main party factions. He had no real relations with the military, no geographic base other than Shanghai, um, and really, you know, was an unknown figure, um, both for Chinese and certainly abroad. Many thus perceived him to be a brief transitional figure, like Hua Guofeng. Um, yet Zhang lasted in power for 13 years. How? I argue that he drew on his background as a bureaucrat and turned it to his political advantage. He was a politician in, in an odd way. Now, China may be a one-party dictatorship, but it still has different constituencies throughout the country, geographic, factional, institutional, patronage networks, and, um, and bureaucratic. Now, I argue in the book that Zhang overcame his initial weaknesses by cultivating various bureaucratic constituencies in the party, in the government, in the military, in the internal security services and other institutional organs. And in each, he adopted their respective institutional preferences and made them his own, effectively co-opting them. Um, and then doing what politicians in all societies uh, are smart to do, shower them with resources and promote their leading cadres and military officers. Now, this was a very astute strategy and, and tactics for, for Jiang Zemin. Um, and it, I think, contributed to uh, his staying power uh, for 13 years. Indeed, he wasn't ready to go after 13 years. Um, and he hung on to the Central Military Commission uh, chair, chairman for another year or so. Now, what about his legacy? Well, the positive elements, I would say, of Jiang Zemin's legacy, and I, I'm pretty positive overall about him, 
include overcoming China's post Tiananmen international isolation, um, overseeing the Hong Kong handover, embracing economic policies, uh, to be sure, which were triggered by Deng's own 1992 Southern tour, but they triggered an unprecedented boom in, in the Chinese economy. Zhang permitted, and I sketch out in the book in some detail, the kind of stealthy political reforms um, that were, I argue in the book, masterminded, masterminded by his right-hand man, Zhang Ching Hong. Uh, this is an individual I give strong credit to, actually, and in, in the book. Other China scholars may uh, see it differently, but I, I think he was instrumental in the post-Soviet collapse, the post-89 movement and throughout the Zhang and the Hu Jintao periods in engineering uh, really uh, substantive political and particularly party reform. So, so that, was, that happened under Zhang's watch. Zhang set the military on a path to sustain modernization and he revitalized the party. So I find his legacy to have been pretty positive overall. Um, now, if there were significant downsides, it was the dramatic expansion of social disparities and the proliferation of corruption on his watch. Now, what about um, Hu Jintao? So I describe Hu Jintao as a technocratic apparatchik. Uh, technocratic due to his training in engineering at Tsinghua University and subsequent work in the hydroelectric industry in Gansu province. Apparatchik because his career of work in the inner party apparatus where he spent his entire career after initial years in Gansu. So Hu Jintao is really an insider's insider, the quintessential party cadre, the product of the party system. Um, he was, you know, frequently dismissed and criticized abroad for his own persona, his rather bland persona. Um, you know, journalists and others frequently referred to him as wooden, stiff, and this, uh, un, you know, often used joke, who's who? Does he have a personality? Well, I would argue this all came, this was not just his persona, but he, he really kind of represented the kind of um, apparatchik cadre that the party uh, trains, more robotic uh, than uh, personal. So he, he's also thought and was criticized after his 10 years in power, his and Wen Jiabao, uh, who was the premier, of course, their, their period of rule was referred to as the 10 lost years by Chinese, not by foreigners. Foreigners didn't have a particularly impressive view of his time in office either, but the Chinese were quite critical, 10 lost years. Yet I think this description may in fact be unfair. Uh, some important policy initiatives were launched and some things were certainly accomplished under their watch, Wen Jiabao and Hu Jintao, notably in social policy, party reform, and foreign policy. Um, and I think maybe with the passage of time, um, he may, they may get higher marks than when they step down. Overall, whose tenure was marked by a distinct shift in policy emphasis away from the growth at all costs, economic calculus and bias towards coastal China associated with the Jiang Zemin era towards a, a new emphasis on the geographic prioritization of the inland Chinese provinces um, and on issues of social equality, social justice, improving basic living standards and social services, environmental protection, poverty alleviation, reducing the burdens on farmers, remember the Sun Nun Wanti, um, public safety and anti-corruption. 
and other so-called public goods. This was a very commendable and progressive agenda that Hu Jintao and Wen Xiaobao launched in their first term, their first five-year term. But it floundered. It simply faltered and was not implemented during the second uh, term. So that's maybe why they were criticized. Um, but as I say, perhaps with the passage of time, Hu Jintao's historical reputation may be, may be burnished for the better. Um, after all, it was noteworthy for its stability, for its predictability, and incremental improvements in both domestic and foreign policy. Um, Hu Jintao could credibly claim at the end of his decade that he had maintained social and political stability, had overseen considerable economic growth, paid attention to the less fortunate sectors of society, protected national security, and continued military modernization. Indeed, his uh, military reforms of 2004 um, were important in pivoting the PLA away from just a Taiwan mission to an increasingly regional and global mission, and enhancing China's position um, on the world stage, and in fact, uh, for paying some attention to soft power. It was in Hu Jintao's 2007 Party Congress speech that the term Ran Shirley was first used officially by any Chinese leader. So it was Hu Jintao to whom we can attribute the focus <laughs> on China's soft power. Um, so, you know, I think all of these accomplishments should certainly count as successes. Uh, he kept China's development train on the tracks. He kept the party in power. He kept the country out of war. He opened extensive exchanges with Taiwan, really important, with Ma Ying-jeou. None of that existed before Hu Jintao's time. And he enhanced the nation's standing in the world. So I think important metrics by any standard. So maybe with the passage of time, he'll get, he'll get more credit. Okay, lastly then, obviously it brings us to Xi Jinping, who I label in the book, a modern emperor. Now, why? <laughs> he seems to me anyway, she rules China during modern times in ways reminiscent of some of China's historical emperors, all powerful, regal, fairly aloof, respected, but feared, sycophanti sycophantically revered in singular control of all organs of state and military power, a believer in China's greatness and promoter of its imperial past, intolerable of insubordination and dissent, a proponent of ethical behavior, um, uh, the setter of official ideological doctrine, interpreter of the past, which we just saw in the 100th anniversary this summer, the uh, revisionist history that uh, he oversaw uh, this summer, and he's a visionary of the future. Um, he's written, you know, 17, I have them all right here on the shelf, 1,774 pages in three volumes, The Governance of China. So he, he's got something to say about every subject. Um, but <laughs> how many people, including the grammar school students in China today, are now being subjected to his uh, learning his thought, how many people can really tell you what she thought is? Um, so he, I see him thus very much like an emperor-like figure, but in a modern period. Uh, insofar also as he seeks to make China's economy and technology truly world-class and China a global power. So notwithstanding his goals and accomplishments, uh, and there we can talk about those, and they, there have been a number in nine years, um, and there, there is public popularity um, for Xi, that's as far as we can tell. 
Uh, I can't really measure it with real scientific surveys, but as far as we can tell, he is a po popular figure with the Lao Baixing. But he also remains a divisive figure in China, as many urbanites, intellectuals, ethnic groups, and party members resent the strict controls and draconian repression she has unleashed on the country. Repression has not been seen since the aftermath of 1989. Um, and he has seemingly steamrolled any opposition in the leadership, the party, the bureaucracies, the military, the internal security services, um, and he's decimated dissent um, in, in the country at large, including Hong Kong. So he's, she is divisive at home, I would say. Um, not everybody is on board the Xi Jinping train, although they can't talk about it uh, openly. He's also divisive abroad, as many countries around the world have grown very uncomfortable with China's new assertiveness, in foreign affairs, its influence operations abroad, the export of censorship, its coercive economic diplomacy, its military modernization, its island building and militarization of the South China Sea, its hyper-nationalistic wolf warrior public diplomacy, and other steps taken under Xi that are causing rising anxieties around the world. Indeed, if you look at the pube and other polls, China's global image is the worst it has been in several decades. Um, amongst those countries that are polled, which are mainly in the so-called global north. In global south, China has a better, uh, better reputation, but, but changing and, and mixed. But I would say that um, under Xi, uh, the China's external image internationally um, is mixed at best and actually in secular decline. So Xi Jinping's report card, you know, so to speak, after nine years is, is I think, mixed. No doubt he's had an extraordinary impact in a fairly short amount of time, which is perhaps even more notable in contrast to his predecessor, uh, Hu Jintao. He's worked very quickly, very methodically, very thoroughly to implement his agenda. It's stunning to all of us, I think, um, who watch China. Um, he's both reactive and proactive in his policies. He exudes personal confidence and exhibits an air, I would say, of entitlement and sense of destiny. Uh, he possesses and has articulated a comprehensive vision for China and in international affairs. Um, and if there was a drift in China under Hu Jintao, well, Xi Jinping has provided new purpose to his citizens and the country. And as I say, is as best we can tell, really quite popular. So while serious problems certainly do lurk under the surface in Xi's China, and many do, the trajectory and momentum of the country that he has initiated is nonetheless really rather remarkable. This is what you call leadership impact. Um, his legacy, though, just to wind up, uh, of course, is incomplete. We don't know how long he's going to rule. But if it were to, if his rule were to end tomorrow, um, he would be credited on the one hand with restoring the strength of the Communist Party. When he took over, I think uh, it was fair to say there were a number of, of maladies, um, of atrophy, as I wrote about in my previous book. Um, and he's obviously set about to, to strengthen the party and nine years later, it's clear that he has done that. He's cracked down on corruption. Uh, he's moved the military closer to world-class standards. He's pursuing an assertive foreign policy and clearly has abandoned Deng Xiaoping's so-called hide and bide, you know, Taoguang Yanghui strategy. Um, and he's overseeing China's ascension uh, to true great power status. On the other hand, his legacy, uh, if it were to end tomorrow, would include rolling back 
many of the governing norms and political reforms introduced by Deng Xiaoping and then pursued under Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao. You know, it's like the last 30 years of political change has not happened. We are back to, in many ways, the early Deng period uh, politically. Um, um, so, you know, I give him, I think that's, uh, that's, a, that's a dark mark on his legacy. And I don't think uh, Deng uh, would approve of it if he were around. So this is a brief synopsis, um, Steve. Um, and, and, you know, it's not over. And his new common prosperity um, agenda, very interesting, reminds one of Hu Jintao's agenda. So we'll see, you know, where, where it goes. Um, but so that's a brief synopsis. I'll stop there. It's a 400 plus page book, you know, so I'm happy to take questions and, and um, hope that I've teased you enough to go out and get a copy. Uh, I, I think that gives, I think it gives all the listeners a taste of what's in the book. By the way, I noticed that Neil Selock um, in his question, which I'm not going to ask the question, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give the comment. He says, bravo on this tremendous read, could not put it down. And that was, that's in his question. Um, what traits, you know, we're always looking at American presidents and kind of talking about common traits and traits which actually were, were different. What traits did these five leaders have in common? And then talk about this very early in the book, you talk about this, this kind of subliminal assumptions that Chinese leaders make and talk a little bit about that because I thought it was, when I read it, I kind of was going, yeah, 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 that's right. <laughs> I've never seen it written, but it's clearly, it's clearly the case. Well, um, my students uh, know, because I've talked about these subliminal assumptions in, in class, um, by the way, I'm a great fan of Lucian Pai's writings. I think maybe the most insightful China scholar uh, of my lifetime anyway. And Lucian wrote a lot about um, what you might call these subliminal assumptions, um, just to tick them off quickly. And uh, regulate everything, hierarchy, discipline, and factionalism. You want hierarchy, you want discipline, you don't want factionalism, but factionalism is, is endemic to the system. I write about the nomenclature and how this is an elite within the elite. The party controls the gun. This is a party army, right? And used for domestic security as well as external security, but it's, that's a different type of model of, of party than other countries have. Um, the United Front, both internally and, and externally. Re-education and rectification campaigns, just incessant purges that have gone on since Yan'an. You know, they've never stopped. Um, they're institutional. The purge is institutionalized. I remember Zbig Brzezinski, um, Zbigniew Brzezinski actually wrote a book about the Soviet Union called The Permanent Purge, if I'm not mistaken. Well, you could, you could say the same thing about the Chinese communist system. Ideology and correct thought, secrecy, the so-called fang shou cycle that fluctuates between opening and tightening. Those are some of the elements I talk about in continuities. Uh, in the Chinese political system that all Chinese leaders uh, inherit and have to operate uh, within. So, um, you know, those are, those are, they're, they're kind of a combination of cultural and structural um, factors that constrain any leader. Now, just to answer your other question, 
I find, and I, was, I must say I was surprised to find in, in writing this book, that there's more discontinuity than there is continuity amongst these five leaders. They're really very, very different. And I just gave you a summary of the, of the five, you know, term adjectives that I use to describe each, but, you know, they're really, um, no one of these five is similar to, the, to another. You know, the two that are closest to each other are Mao and Xi, but there are clearly differences uh, in Xi's behavior that distinguish him from Chairman Mao. So, you know, one would assume in a Leninist system like that, where there is so much, so much of this kind of cultural and institutional, what Lucian Pai used to call Confucianist Leninism, and he captured it perfectly. Um, you know, one would assume there'd be a great deal of continuity amongst these leaders. No, in fact, I find in these five, and then if you add in Zhao Ziyang and Hu Yaobang or even Hua Guofeng, um, you know, very different. So the system uh, doesn't change, um, but the people and the styles of leadership uh, I found, and as I say, it was sort of surprising to me, they, they do change over time. You talked about why you wrote the book, but why now? What, what kind of provoked you to do it at this? Obviously you've been thinking about it for decades and decades. What provoked you to do it at this point in time? <laughs> Well, it had literally uh, been uh, brewing in my brain and in my classrooms, as my students know, um, uh, for decades. Um, but um, I guess two things really precipitated it now. Number one is uh, having finished my previous book on uh, where great powers meet, America and China and Southeast Asia, which we launched, what, six months ago um, here at the National Committee. So that, that book was done. That book was done over a year before we launched it. Um, that publisher is much is much slower than Polity Press, who I commend, by the way, to all authors. You want a good publisher? Uh, go to Polity Press. I've been very happy with them. It's my second book with them. But anyway, uh, the other factor was COVID, right? So COVID hit in the spring of, of um, last year, and I had finished my Southeast Asia book. And I was sort of thinking, you know, how can I use my time usefully if I'm going to be locked down and hibernating for an indefinite number of months? So I thought, okay, David, it's time just to sit down and, and write this. It's been in my brain, as I say, for four decades. I have my lecture notes, but I actually had to do a lot of new research. Um, took me nine months. You, I, you might say I researched it for 40 years, but it took me nine months to, to actually sit down and write. And I wrote wrote it mainly up in, in Northern Michigan and, and uh, here, here in Virginia. But um, I actually found that there were a lot of things I'd either forgotten or didn't know about all five of these leaders periods, including the, the ones I knew most about, the Deng and the Mao eras. Um, but I had to do a fair amount of, of digging and, and background reading um, for the Zhang and the Hu Jintao um, periods as well. So. Um, so that, that's why I did it now, and um, just wanted didn't, to get it. didn't relate to the 20th Con Party Congress occurring in about 14 months. Well, I did. Once I started writing it, I realized that, yes, indeed, the 100th anniversary is going to occur on July 1st. So can I get it done and published in conjunction with that, which is, you know, you know, a number of my our colleagues, Bruce Dixon, Joe Fusmith, um, Tony Sage. Uh, and others have also published very good, fine books on the CCP in conjunction with the Congress this, this summer. 
but I was thinking of 2022, the oh, 2040 oh, oh. Congress. No, 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 that, I was thinking more of the 100th, 100th anniversary. Yeah, now, by the way, again, going back to Neil Seelock's question, he said, you know, can you, when you do this going forward, could you talk about each leader's kind of relationships with their foreign interlocutors? That would be a kind of, I guess he's suggesting the book doesn't talk enough about this. Well, Neil, thank you uh, for the question. And I'm glad you like the book. Um, you know, I do talk about it in, in, in the context of Deng and Jiang Zemin. Um, Mao, uh, you know, I, I discuss it a little bit there. Mao's interactions with foreign leaders, we all know he sat in this big overstuffed chair in, in his study in the Jungnan High, he was not particularly well. I go into great detail in the book um, about his health and deterioration of his health and the strokes that he'd had. And, you know, so his interactions, if you want to call it that, with foreign leaders, including President Nixon, he, he barely was alive to meet Nixon. Um, you know, I wouldn't really call, I wouldn't say Mao interacted with foreign leaders. He sort of sat there. Well, and, with Stalin, he did. Well, yeah, sure. It, yeah, well, that was not, and, a, and you and you talk about that quite a bit in the book. Yes, in that fact, talking about so stuff much. I hadn't realized because I hadn't read the declassified documents. Yeah, um, well, it's all pretty well known now, but Stalin certainly toyed with Mao. It was not a pleasant six weeks for for the chairman. Um, but it, fair enough, you know, maybe I could have talked more about about Mao's interactions. Um, Deng similarly, uh, Deng interacted with foreigners, but he was kind of cryptic. You know, he, he was spoken in Cheng Yu's and the, as did Mao in these sort of four, eight, 16, 32 character phrases. Didn't talk a lot. Um, you know, again, there are those who, who have negotiated with Deng um, who may have a, a better sense of this than me, but um, he was a strategist. He liked to talk as Mao did at sort of a really meta level. Zhang Zemin it was very different as we all know. Uh, he was flamboyant. He was uh, um, unpredictable, spontaneous. He would go off script. After he'd meet with foreign leaders, I'm told by foreign diplomats, American diplomats included, that the Chinese diplomats would then hand them pieces of paper saying, this is what, what President Zhang uh, really meant to say in the last hour. But Zhang, was, Zhang would not stick to his talking points. He would just go, he'd start singing. He'd start reciting poetry, the Gettysburg Address. Um, you know, spontaneously kind of, hit, he couldn't, the conversation, you never knew where it was going to go with Jung. So he, that was, I write about that. And that's, that's kind of unusual. Um, Hu Jintao, highly scripted, never had any notes in front of him. The foreign diplomats that I've spoken to about who have been in meetings with Hu Jintao were just really impressed by his so-called steel trap memory. He absorbed his talking points and he delivered them word for word. There was no need to pass papers after the meeting to tell the foreigner what uh, President Hu had just said. Now, there's a picture of you shaking hands with President Hu. Did you get to talk to him at all? Yeah, I did. In fact, it was at the National Committee dinner uh, here in Washington when he visited in 2011. Um, and I did talk to him for, uh, you can see in the, in the photograph in the book, um, it's uh, right up there in front of the podium. I talked to him for about four or five minutes. There's a kind of interest, interesting backstory to it, which will take too much time to, but I, um, 
you know, I knew Wang Hu Ning when he was a pro professor at Fudan University. And then of course he became a, a senior advisor at Jiang Zemin and then Hu Jintao. And, and, but I hadn't seen him since he went to work in the upper levels of the party. But there was Wang Hu Ning seated about 10 feet away from me at the head table. So I kind of waved at him and he put his head down. Who's this foreigner <laughs> waving at me? And, and he didn't want to make eye contact. So I thought, well, how can I get his attention? Um, so I decided to give my name card to one of the security guards who then took it to Wang Hu Ning. Wang Hu Ning looks at my security, at my um, name card and says, oh, it's Shandawei. Who, and he, and he smiled and waved. I thought that was the end of that. A minute later, I felt tap on my shoulder. Here's Wang Hu Ning. He came around from the head table to me. I stood up, he said, we chatted a little bit. And he said, by the way, have you ever met our president? I said, no, would you like to meet our president? I said, well, sure. And he takes me by the sleeve. This is a story hadn't been told publicly before and takes me up to the head table where Hu Jintao is eating his dinner next to Carla Hills and uh, taps President Hu on the shoulder, interrupts his dinner. Uh, Hu Jintao stands up and Wang Huning uh, says, well, this is Shen Dawei, professor and works on the Communist Party of China. And Hu said, oh yes, I've read your book your previous book. Uh, in fact, the whole Politburo has read your book. And I thought, oh boy, uh, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And he said, well, when are you coming to China next? So I told him, and then we, we chatted for in Chinese for, I don't know, a couple of minutes. And uh, that was that. So that's the backstory. Wow. <laughs> but he, he wasn't stiff then. He actually talked He's, to me. He said he read the book. Yeah, and I, the photograph you're referring to is actually <laughs> smiling. So I don't know. He does smile on occasion. Yeah, I, I always, you know, I've had interaction, obviously as president of the committees, I've had interactions with almost all of the, with, with Xi Jinping, Hu Jintao, um, and prior to that in my personal capacity, I, I worry about drawing conclusions based upon those interactions. Right. It, it's really, it's touching the, the tail of the elephant. I, you know, I found uh, President Xi, uh, when he was vice president, I had a, long interaction with him and it was as warm and friendly as any standing committee member has ever been to me. I mean, and, and that would lead you to certain conclusions which may not be right. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, you're sitting in Washington. What would you tell the Biden administration to take from this book? What does it mean about thinking about Chinese leadership? Hmm, goodness. Um, you know, I haven't really thought about that, but I would say uh, just off the top of my head that uh, Xi Jinping uh, will likely be with us as leader of China for an indefinite future. Get used to it. He's not going to step down at the Congress uh, next year. Um, and what we've seen from him in the first nine years, there's probably going to be much more of. Um, so, but with some changes, I mean, this new common prosperity program, as I say, that he's unleashed uh, on, on, in the last uh, month or so, you know, that's interesting. So there will be changes. I don't know, for, for the Biden administration, I guess my sense of China um, under Xi Jinping is one of uber confidence. This is a, um, very confident, uh, in fact, I would say overconfident um, elite. Um, and also a, 
a government and a party that are subject to uber nationalism from below. So you have, you know, this is, they feel their time has come and they think in long sweeps of history and they are convinced uh, that the West is in decline, the United States in particular. So I think they've made a judgment um, and they're, they've abandoned a lot of their uh, previous reticence to criticize, their previous willingness to listen to criticism. Um, and they're acting in ways that we've seen, of course, we you know, label this wolf warrior public diplomacy, but it comes from the top, it comes from Xi Jinping himself. Um, we're dealing with a very uh, strong, confident, as I say, I think overconfident uh, re regime. Now that's born out of, and there's some insecurity on their part. Um, you know, it looks really secure on the outside. The Chinese have a phrase, Wai Ying Nei Ran, hard on the outside, soft on the inside. I think there are a lot of vulnerabilities in that country, but certainly this is a tough regime and um, it's going to be very tough for the United States and others to deal with. How much of the wolf warrior is based upon Chinese domestic, I mean, you're one of the leading experts on Chinese domestic politics. How much of it is based upon Chinese domestic politics and how much of it is based upon what's happened externally. That now five years ago, we elected a president who basically you know, challenged the world order in a way that was incredibly anti-China. And a lot of the attacks have been uh, based upon those, those changes. So, and obviously the way we've handled COVID has been a disgrace. And to not point it out would be kind of like, well, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna cover my eyes and hear no evil, see no evil, and speak no evil. But, you know, I, I'm, I, I don't know how my, I, I, you know, partly it's what we were talking about before the program started, not being able to go and have dinner with your, your friends and your colleagues and folks. You, you, I can't get a sense of what is actually driving this. So is it domestic politics or is it really external events or is it some combination of the two? I would say that uh, this new kind of nationalistic um, persona and narratives and, and uber confidence um, uh, is new because it's uh, public, but it's always been there in China, you know, and, and the negative views of the United States have always been there in China. I wrote my PhD dissertation almost 40 years ago on Chinese perceptions of America. They've never stopped being negative uh, about the U.S. internally. So I guess the way I'd answer the question is that they've, the Chinese uh, regime has sublimated for many years their criticisms. Um, but now they feel that their time has come, their, their power is at a stage where they don't need to uh, listen anymore. And in fact, others need to listen to them. So this is a, this is a qualitative turn, but it's not as a result of Xi Jinping. Maybe Xi Jinping has given license, you might say, for forces that have been there in the party and in the society all along, I would argue. I, I don't think this is terribly new. It's just that uh, they're now going really public with it. Um, but this sort of mm, this sort of invective that we're hearing from the podiums of the foreign ministry and embassies abroad has been there in the writings of uh, Chinese scholars and you know, amongst cadres, amongst uh, different officials at different levels of the country. 
for a very long time. So it's not. I, I agree, but it's it's some you know it's it's a portion. It's always been a portion of kind of Chinese intellectuals and and others and people in the party. But it's it's a portion, and I actually think that again we can't get a clear view. I think it's not a majority, and that it is it's not even a majority today. And I think we have to bear in mind that. A Chinese votes with their children. And the president's daughter came to Harvard to study. Mm -hmm. And that is a vote of confidence in the American educational system that we often today, when we're kind of engaged and thinking China's doing everything wrong, we lose sight of. Um, Xi Jinping, you know, the National Committee, as you know, hosted Xi Jinping's father uh, on a long trip in the United States. And she, when I spoke with him, really knew about that and appreciated it. It was very interested in the photographs that we presented to him. So I worry that we sometimes get it wrong and not having human contact makes it even more difficult. You know, I agree with you, Steve. There is a real danger to over, over characterizing uniformly China. There always is, you know, we, we have this shorthand of China, this, China's that. This is a highly variegated society. Um, and, and they're even today, and you're quite right, by not being able to go there, travel there, talk to people, that only reinforces the kind of caricatures and even the stigma, stigmas that um, are uh, being written about. On the other hand, you know, there is behavior taking place uh, by the Xi regime that we haven't seen before. And it's not um, you know, terribly welcomed by a number of countries. I would just say this wolf warrior uh, kind of persona that we're seeing in the public diplomacy, is not helping China, quite to the contrary. There is a correlation. It's done for domestic political, I mean, you would know more than I, it's done for domestic political purposes. No, I'm sorry, I disagree. I think that is a, um, conclusion people jump to. I think this is genuine. I think this is what they feel about the outside world. And they're going to tell us and tell others exactly what they think from here on out. It's not to feed some domestic constituency. This is this is genuine. I think there's a, well, the again, you have to get into specifics of what the wolf warriors say, but in terms of uh, criticism of Xinjiang, criticism of Hong Kong, uh, kind of support for Taiwan, uh, independence, official relations with Taiwan. Yes, they genuinely believe that. I think there is little question that that's genuine, but they have to state it so forcefully or else the nationalists in China would dump down their throat. Yeah, fair enough, yeah. I mean, that would be my uh, uh, my view. Um, Frank Keel asks a question. After Mao's death, there was an interregnum where Hua Guofeng uh, became titular head. What were the political forces that were in control at that time? And you talk about this in the book. Were they all united behind Deng? What does that irregular succession say about the future possibility of the same? About the future possibilities presently? Yes, I assume that's what Frank means, yes. Uh, well, that period and it's ironic, today is the 45th anniversary of Chairman Mao's death, September 9th. Um, but if you think back to those years and the year or so previous to it, we had the April 5th, first Tiananmen incident. Um, 
and uh, there was a lot of factional maneuvering, of course, going on as, as Mao became progressively ill. And uh, I describe all that in the book, largely as a result of, of his doctor's um, biography. We know how, just how ill he was for the last two, three, even four years of his life. Um, but uh, we, we know there was, there was a lot of factional maneuvering. Then, of course, the Gang of Four were arrested a month um, after Mao's death. Marshal Ye Jin Ying, uh, in particular, uh, was kind of the um, the hand, the steady hand, you might say. He's the one who persuaded Hua Guofeng that the gang needed to be arrested, amongst other things. Hua, Hua himself had been catapulted up from um, from the provinces. He'd been in Beijing for what I think a year and a half, working in the state council, minister of public security. Then he gets anointed. <laughs> it's still a little unclear exactly how Mao anointed him as his successor. Anyway, um, uh, he was, there was a lot of support for Deng Xiaoping at the time, but Deng had been purged in the wake of the Tiananmen incident that spring in 76 and was living under house arrest, we now know. But it was just really, there was a lot of support for him in the military and the party and the government. So it was really, that was a tension, right, between Deng and Hua Guofeng and played out over the next four years, really. Hua didn't fully give up all of his positions till 1982. Um, six years, in fact. So that was that. That was the history. What is the relevance uh, for today? Um, <laughs> good question. But there are no succession procedures in place. You know, this is what, what Xi Jinping, one of the things he's done is to, when I say he's overturned Dungism, he's overturned the predictability of the of the succession of retirement norms of decision making procedures recruitment the way the party uh, deals within itself what they call interparty democracy which there isn't much of these days external he, xi jinping has really turned uh, the political system back uh, really to kind of the way it was at the end of the maoist era it's a i would argue uh, it's a kind of frozen system. The party today is, is robotic. It's like a machine. It's like a military. They take orders from the top, from the commander in chief, and everybody's got to obey them and implement them. You know, this is not a responsive uh, party, um, not the kind of party the Deng Zhang or who uh, was trying to build. So I would say that Xi Jinping is very retrograde. Uh, in in this dimension. And he's therefore leaving. Yes, he's strengthened the party in the last nine years. He dealt with corruption very harshly, so on and so forth. But I think, in fact, he's um, left the party perhaps in a more fragile state in the medium and the longer term because it's not responsive to. This is the 21st century. It's not 1976. So you wouldn't, because you would coin the phrase, I think, authoritarian resilience back you know, 10 years ago? It was Andy Nathan, no Andy Nathan, actually, but I agreed with that thesis. And I, you, wrote the, you wrote the book, right? you know, and, and, you know, which I read and felt this is, <laughs> this, you know, I see this every day. This is exactly what, this is an explanation of the theory behind what the practice is. So right. you think that's no longer applicable? Um, no, that book, and, and this book describes the post-mortem assessment of the Soviet collapse. It is absolutely central to understanding the Chinese Communist Party ever since 1991. And in short, I argue that 
uh, up until Xi Jinping, or actually late Hu Jintao, um, they drew a number of lessons uh, led by Zheng Qinghong uh, that was to manage opening, political opening uh, in the society. Uh, they drew a number of conclusions based on not only the Soviet collapse, but their own self-examination. And they determined that they had to open the system in a number of ways, otherwise it would atrophy and it could lead to collapse. Well, that was one school of thought. There was always another school of thought says, don't go there. You cannot manage it. It will cascade out of control and we will fall from power. Xi Jinping has always been a member and representative of the second school. So we begin, we certainly see under his nine years in power, but I argue it started in 2009, 10, actually I was living there in Beijing that year as a Fulbright scholar. You, it, that's when it began, um, this hardening. And the, and the second school says, no, the only way to strengthen a party and keep it from collapsing is to crack down. So you've had two really polar opposite approaches to dealing with party atrophy, one opening, one closing. That's why they call it the Fang Shou cycle. So I, I would argue that the, you know, he may have strengthened the party in the short term in the last seven years, but I think um, perhaps not in the medium or long term. His policies are remarkably popular among the Laobaixing. In other words, you talk about that there is a lot of folks in the elites who are not happy. There are folks in the technology sector who are not happy, just as if, if the Biden administration cracks down on Facebook, Google, YouTube, Twitter, et cetera, they're going to be unhappy too. You know, this private tutoring, one can argue, was a perversion of the educational system. And to crack down on it is maybe you don't agree with the way they do it, but the philosophy of someone who's in education, you got to kind of say, well, you know, is it fair that rich people can get tutoring and poor people can't? Does that, Matt, does that then cement um, class differences and make it impossible to agree? So this is a person who's incredibly popular among the Chinese population. Isn't that a fair statement? I don't think we really fully know because we can't do any systematic polling. Now, my colleague Bruce Dixon has just published a really excellent book too called The Party and the People. And he makes that argument that um, Xi Jinping's party uh, rules through a combination of repression and popularity. And there, there are two, uh, two levers, two instruments uh, that they use. So it's not all repression. I tend to emphasize the repression side more. Bruce emphasizes the popularity side more. You emphasize the popularity side more. He does seem to be popular, um, you know, from what we can tell, based on nationalism and improved living standards in the sense that China's day has finally come. But I don't think we can really, I, I'm not comfortable coming to that conclusion, um, you know, that uh, he's universally revered across the country. I think no, not universally, but certainly the, the Lao Baixing like these policies. And, you know, it's interesting, again, it's one of the problems is, of course, not being there. Right. But you see him walk a rope line, go to the, you know, whether it's he's, you know, wherever he goes. And you can say they've paid 10,000 actors to kind of surge forward and want to shake his hand. I don't think so. I think that's a real reflection. I've seen so many politicians kind of work the rope line over my life. And I know the popular ones from the unpopular ones. And this, there really seems to be um, a strong 
uh, public support mm -hmm. for him. Of course, there was for Mao too, despite mm -hmm. despite mm -hmm. what he did. The people mm -hmm. they weren't faking it when they surged towards him in in Tiananmen. Um, let me. I see we're out of time. This has gone incredibly quickly, but um, um, let me just ask two final questions. One um, was, you know, is, is Nick Lardy's question of how should we think about how long Xi Jinping will stay in power? What are they gonna be the drivers um, of his decision? And the other was um, uh, Ken, was it Kiang? Um, who said, how much does Xi Jinping Xiaofang experience for that over a decade period, which you talk about in your book, affect the way he thinks about governing China today? Well, on the second question, I think it links very much to what we were just talking about and your points about popularity with Lao Baixing. Um, even though Xi Jinping is a princeling, he's what they you know call red aristocrat or, um, child of the elite, he grew up in the Jungnan High. His father was a Politburo member. He went to you know, the best schools. He, his classmates were other children of senior elites. So you know, this was a very uh, sequestered, pampered uh, young man until the age of 14 um, when he was sent off to the countryside uh, with a down to the countryside youth program. And he spent seven years in the countryside I write about it. It's um, written about quite a lot, rather hagiographically, I should say, in China. But it did have a real effect on him. Um, and not only that period, but then he, after he was the aide to the Minister of Defense, Gung Biao, and he went off and began his, uh, what, 20 plus year career in the provinces, he worked, worked in a county, Zhengding County, south of Beijing for a few years. And then he went to um, Fujian for a very long time, I write about that, and then to Zhejiang. So this is an individual who has spent uh, most of his life outside the capital, having been born in the Zhongnan High and grown up in this rather pampered uh, existence. So I think that that really, that long period, including the teenage years on the Northern steppes of the North China Plain near Yan'an were really formative. And he does have a real feel for and sense of rural life and hardship. And I think that's one thing that really gives credence to is his popularity. So I think that question joins your, your earlier point there. Now, Nick, <laughs> Nick asked the crystal ball question. In fact, a number of the questions that came in were shared with me are crystal ball, what comes next after she? Um, well, I don't have a crystal ball, but I would say barring a health incident or a black swan event of some sort, we're going to have Xi Jinping as China's leader for you know a very long time. He's he's uh, 68 years old. Um, again, we don't know about his health because they never tell you about the health of Chinese leaders. He's overweight. That's clear. Doesn't it's hard to imagine Xi Jinping on a treadmill or swimming laps every day or running a few you know kilometers a day. But um, he's going to be in power you know as far as we can tell. And clearly he's uh, finessed the. Uh, rules on the presidency so he can, there are no more uh, terms, you know, he's going to exceed the second term 
uh, at the National People's Congress in 2023, I guess it would be. So he'll stay on as, as president. There is no term limits on general secretary or in the chairmanship of the Central Military Commission. So he can lead both of those indefinitely. He shows no sign of stepping down. There's no designated successor. People talk a little bit about Chun Min Er, the Chongqing party secretary, who knows? Um, so, you know, I think we're gonna have uh, Xi Jinping ism, <laughs> not just Xi Jinping, but Xi Jinping ism really for a very long, long time to come. Um, so I wish I, you know, I wish I could uh, answer these crystal ball questions, um, but I, I learned long ago in the China business, don't, don't go there, don't go out on, on a limb and predict, try and predict anything about China. It's not, not a safe strategy. David, thank you so much for writing this book. Another of your wonderful books. As, as one of our listeners today put it, you can't put it down after you've started it, which is absolutely true. So I hope all the hundreds of people on this call and those who will see it after we post it uh, buy the book because it's really an extremely worthwhile read and really does form the way uh, you should be. We should be thinking about the Chinese leadership. But David, thank you so much for kicking off uh, this book with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for hosting it, Steve, and to the National Committee. Thanks, all. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.